just a few minutes, we are going to be reading uh, just one verse this morning. We will look at several verses throughout the entirety of the message, but I'm kind of using uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 as this launching pad for the message. If you'd like to go ahead and find your way there in your Bible or um, it's in the Bible app, it's, it's uh, on our website as well under message notes, um, or if you're watching live on our website, it's, it's on there too. Um, I want to let you know right up front that we're going to be looking at 10 traits of a good church. And I know what you're thinking. How in the world is pastor going to preach 10 traits in 20 minutes? Well, I've never preached 20 minutes, but anyway. Um, but how are we going to do this? Uh, uh, this means I'm not going to be able to go into to great detail on all of these points. Um, but my desire is that we're going to have a good grasp of what a good church is when we're all done. And the reason I say we'll have a good grasp of what a good church is um, is primarily because I found uh, often what happens in churches is uh, churches want to know what other churches are doing. And so if another church is doing something and, and that church is growing and, and doing well, then another church tries to mimic what that church is, is doing. And churches have become really good at doing right so that they, they become good at oh this church is doing that so we're going to do that rather than being good at being and so my prayer is that we will spend less time doing and more time being a good church there are three specific reasons why i believe this is an adequate message for us this morning First, it's entirely possible that someone either here or uh, someone that may be listening online is in the process of looking for a good church, and and uh, they want to find a good church. And, and to be able to find a good church, well, we have to know what to look for. And, and I found that there are many reasons that people pick churches, and not all of them are based on the Bible. Some people um, are, they just like the vibes of, of the church, or or others, perhaps they say, well, I felt welcomed and loved when I went to the church. And some people pick a church on, based on what their, uh, uh, what their kids like. Well, my kids like this church, so we're going to go there. Others prefer a church based upon the music. Well, I like the music at that church. Or even, uh, I like the church building. They've got this cool, hip building, and they got an awesome coffee bar, or whatever it might be. And some people may choose a church based on how the pastor dresses. You know, I don't like the pastor's purple tide this morning, so I'm done, or whatever it might be. All I'm saying is that we need to understand that the what the Bible tells us is a good church. Not what, not what man tells us, not what the media tells us, not what someone else tells us, but what does the Bible say to us that, hey, this is a good church. Okay. There's a second reason I'm preaching this message. It's possible that you have friends that are looking for a good church. Have you ever been talking to someone and you heard them say they are looking for a good church? I love what I hear uh, my buddy Bill Sexton over here saying when people visit our church and they tell them they're looking for a church. He always says, well, you can stop looking. That's what he said. Well, you can stop looking. You're, you're here. Uh, I just think that's a great attitude to have about our church. That's, that's the attitude everybody should have. Well, this is it. We're a good church. Personally, personally, I would um, like you to be able to offer specific help to others. 
when they're looking for a church. The first place that we should look is the Bible, but that doesn't really occur to everyone. To look in the Bible to see what God says about what makes a good church. Lastly, I'm preaching this message because I believe that we can use these traits to say, um, are we a good church? And where can we improve? Now, before getting into this message, let me be clear that there are no perfect churches. Because all churches are made up of imperfect people. It's just the way it is. You may, may have heard the saying, if you find a perfect church, don't join it because you will ruin it. Even though perfect churches do not exist, there are still good, solid churches. And I think it would benefit us to strive to be one of those churches for the glory of God. So I would ask this morning that if you're willing and able, would you please stand out of respect for God's word as I read Acts chapter 2, verse 42. We're reading from the English Standard Version, just this one verse this morning, which I believe speaks volumes to us. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and prayers. Let's pray. Father, take your word this morning and penetrate our hearts. Reveal through your word this morning what is a good church. And then, Lord, as you are doing that, if, if we have shortcomings, reveal those to us. Lord, so our desire would be not to be a perfect church because we know there aren't any, but to be a good church that follows after you and glorifies you in your name. Speak for your saints are listening this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I don't think you're going to remember all 10 of these traits this morning, um, but I hope you'll remember at least some of them. And we have notes, so you can always go back to them. Some of our uh, remaining messages in this series of the church will look at some of these traits more in depth later on in the coming weeks. But the first thing I want us to see concerning uh, a good church is this. The first trait is they teach God's word for the equipping of the saints. They teach God's word for the equipping of the saints. Now you're probably thinking, well, of course, pastor is going to say something about preaching right at the beginning because he's the preacher. So of course he's going to say that. However, let me say this. A church that does not teach God's word has failed at its fundamental duty and nothing else after that will matter. Suppose the church does not have the solid preaching and teaching of God's word as its foundation. In that case, that church will drift into false doctrine and conform to the culture of the day. We don't have to look very far to see that this is happening now. There are many, many dejected examples all over the place. But here's the thing. You don't need to hear this from me. You don't need to hear, well, well, you know, pastor's going to stand up there and tell us that the, 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 they got to preach God's word. You don't need to hear it from me because the Bible speaks for itself. You don't need me to speak it. 
The verse we just read in Acts 2.42, speaking of the early church, they devoted themselves to what? The apostles teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. How about when Paul is giving uh, a reminder to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 20, where he says, uh, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Or how about Paul to the exact same elders, where I did not shrink from you declaring to you the whole counsel of God in Acts 20, 27. Or how about he says, if, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of, household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Paul's making it clear that there is such a thing as spiritual truth and spiritual error. Or 1 Timothy 5, 17, where Paul's speaking in need to support elders who preach and teach. And he says this, let the elders who rule among you be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Or how about when, when Paul is, is uh, encouraging young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, where he says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Or how about when Paul is reminding Timothy of the importance of the power of Scripture? And he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for the training of righteousness, that, man, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Or how about when Paul tells Timothy the primary task of a pastor and the primary task of the church? In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the same is time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from the listening of the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, enduring suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. You see, the pastor's primary task is to preach God's word. And the primary task of the church is to hear God's word with a heart to obey God's word. Amen. Or we can look at the book of Ephesians and, and here where, where we read, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ in Ephesians 4.11. Paul says the equipping ministry of pastors and teachers keep the church from being tossed by various doctrines, false doctrines. The primary duty or the primary trait when looking for a good church should be does this church teach God's word for the equipping of the saints? Second, 
They proclaim the gospel without compromise. They proclaim the gospel without compromise. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, Romans 1.16. Since the gospel is necessary for salvation, Satan works overtime to promote a false gospel that does not save. This is usually seen just like with the Judaizers in, in Galatia that we talked about. I believe that was last week where, where uh, you have some form of human works that are added to Christ's work on the cross. Where the false gospel will divert attention away from human sinfulness and, and the need for God to save us. And in this form, they promise that Jesus will give you this happy life, a happy marriage, happy family, great career, all of this stuff. Apart from repentance from your sin and faith in Jesus and his shed blood. And that's a false gospel. The true gospel says that we're all sinners and we deserve God's righteous judgment. No amount of good works that we can possibly do will pay the penalty for our sin, which is eternal separation from God. God in his love sent his eternal son, Jesus Christ, to take on human flesh, to die in my place. And he offers eternal life and forgiveness of all sins to everyone who turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus' death and resurrection. Salvation is not a reward for human works. But it's God's free gift to all who truly believe in Jesus. The third trick of the good church is this. They love God and one another while worshiping in spirit and truth. They love God and one another while worshiping in spirit and truth. Perhaps you know that Jesus summarized all of God's commandments with two. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In Matthew 22, 37-39. So we can clearly see that we are to love God and to love one another. Jesus told the woman at the well, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Listen, good, healthy churches major in the majors. They love God. And they love one another. They worship God, not how they want to worship God, but they worship God how God tells us to worship him in spirit and in truth. Love for God's not just this feeling, right? Like, oh, I just, I feel all warm inside and I just feel so good. It includes obedience to his commands. Love for one another means that you're seeking that other person's highest good, which means that you help them grow in holiness. And true worship is a matter of our hearts before God. And praise the Lord for that, folks. Especially when I'm singing. It's about your heart. It, that's what it means in spirit. Where is your heart when you're, when you're singing songs and you're offering this worship to God? Where is your heart at? But it's also based on the truth of how God is revealed in his word. 
sometimes uh, we might be guilty of singing songs that really has nothing to do with how God is revealed in his word. It just sounds cool or catchy or whatever it might be. That's what it means in truth. In spirit, where's my heart at when I'm worshiping God? Is my heart fully focused on God in spirit? And is what's coming out of my mouth the truth of God's word? Spirit and truth. Fourthly, in a good church, they make obedient disciples who live by grace and the power of the Spirit. They make obedient disciples who live by grace and the power of the Spirit. I want to pause um, real quick here and say something about legalism. Because legalism is the opposite of living by the power of the Holy Spirit. Legalism adds man-made rules over petty issues and then judges other people based upon whether they keep your man-made rule or not. And so I make up a rule like, I don't know, I'll just think of one off the top of my head. Um, I'll, I'll use Bill. He, he, he doesn't mind me using him. Uh, Bill's never said this, but Bill's always in a suit. So that'd be like if Bill said, you got to wear a suit. To church on Sunday. That's my man-made rule, and if not, you're not properly worshiping God. Man-made rule, holding everybody else to his standard. That's legalism. Jesus clashed with the Pharisees because of legalism, because legalism is a plague upon the church. We said, well, you got to keep my rules. So Jesus has this clash with, with the Pharisees because they added hundreds of rules to the Old Testament. They had, the Pharisees had rules to keep you from breaking the rules. Here's a rule I'm going to make up so you don't break this rule. And they, they would go on down the line, especially rules regarding the Sabbath. They were so proud, the Pharisees were so proud of their outward conformity to the rules. But what Jesus said, their hearts were far from God. And let me say this. Sometimes what happens in Christians is um, when they throw off their legalism, when, when kind of the light goes on and they, they realize that they have Christian liberty in, in this sort of thing, and you don't have to follow this these legalistic uh, rules, the door swings far in the opposite direction, the opposite extreme, they disregard and say, well, you don't have to be obedient to the commands of Christ. Jesus entrusted the great commission to us where he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the age. That's obedience. Disciples are followers of Jesus who keep his commands. He said, you keep my commands, plain and simple. However, they do not keep his commandments outwardly to check it off the box and to press other people and say, well, look, I did, I did what I'm supposed to do today. We don't just keep our commandments like the Pharisees. Oh, I, I gave my tithe. Check it off. Got up this morning, did my quiet time. Check it off. I memorized the scripture this week. Check it off. That's what the Pharisees did. Instead, we have obedient hearts that stem from our love for Christ and its response to the grace of God. 
walking by the power and the presence of his indwelling Holy Spirit in us. I love how Paul says it in Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Fifthly, a good church is where loving fellowship among the saints is edifying and healthy. Where loving fellowship among the saints is edifying and healthy. As we looked at Acts 2.42, the early church didn't just devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, but also to the fellowship. A few verses later, um, Luke tells us that, And day by day, attending to the temple together and the breaking of bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Paul gives a description of a healthy church in Ephesians where he writes this, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head and the Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We can also go through and read all the one another's all through the New Testament. There's all these one another's of how we are supposed to treat one another and, and have this edifying and, and healthy fellowship among the saints of God. They're all through the scripture. Like love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor in Romans 12.10. Or may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. Or Romans chapter 15 verse 5. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. I could go on. But I'll stop. The point is a good church is where there's this loving fellowship with one another. And you're edifying one another in your, and it's a healthy relationship. Sixthly, a good church is where the ordinances of baptism and communion are practiced. A good church is where the ordinances of baptism and communion are practiced. In the Institutes of Christian Religion, John Calvin says that the preaching of the word and the proper administration of the sacraments are the marks of a true Church. Other reformers added a third mark, and that being church discipline. Jesus mentioned baptism as part of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18. In Acts 2.42, the breaking of bread referred to the observance of the Lord's Supper. Now I'll say this: that many Christians, or many, many Christians, including Calvin, believe that baptism should be ministered to infants as a sign of the covenant. I believe that scripture is overwhelmingly clear, which is why I'm a Baptist, that it should be administered to believers upon a credible confession of faith in Christ for salvation. There's no commandment of, of how often we should observe the Lord's Supper or, or, um, um, or even how often we should have baptisms, uh, but the early church most likely had the Lord's Supper every single week. In two weeks, we'll have a message on Baptism, and in three weeks we'll have a message 
on the Lord's Supper, also in two weeks, we will have a baptism. April 25th. And so let me just say real quick, if you've never been baptized as a believer, I would challenge you to do so. You can come and talk with me. You can say, Pastor, uh, what do I need to do to, to be baptized? We ask for a credible confession of faith, and part of that is you come forward and you let the church know that you want to be baptized, and that's your credible confession of faith after I've usually talked with you, and then uh, we baptize. I don't, we don't withhold baptism from anybody. As long as they know Christ as their Savior, we baptize. Seventhly, prayer undergirds everything in a good church. Prayer undergirds everything. As we read in Acts 2.42, the early church devoted itself to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. Paul commanded us to be devoted to prayer. Romans chapter 12, verse 12, he repeated in Colossians 4, 2, devote yourselves to prayer. He gave a command that seems impossible when he said, pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Of course, he's not saying that every second of every day that we are to be praying. What he is saying is, is I believe, is that, that, that we should pray often and repeatedly. That word for without ceasing is used uh, of a hacking cough or or uh, repeated military assaults, both as individuals and as a church. We should be praying often and repeatedly about everything we are doing. It's kind of hard then um, to go out and sin right after you pray. You realize that? Like, Lord, be with, the, be with this decision I'm about to make. And, and just pray that you would bless it. How are you going to do that and then turn around and sin? So in prayer, we acknowledge our dependence on God for his blessing, not on ourselves, our efforts, or our great organizational plan. In his book, Expect, Expecting the Lord's Blessing, Chinese church leader Watchman Nee writes this, Everything in our service for the Lord is dependent on his blessing. The meeting of the need is not dependent on the supply in hand, but on the blessing of the Lord resting on the supply. Praise God for that. And Nee's point was that the five loaves and two fish that were brought to Jesus were incredibly inadequate to feed 5,000 men plus women and children. Even the hypothetical 200 denarii, which Philip thought might possibly buy enough bread to feed everybody, would have been woefully insufficient. But what happens when Jesus blesses this meager supply? Everyone eats and is satisfied, and then they pick up 12 basketfuls afterwards. That's what he says. God's blessing is trusting him to work out of all correspondence to what we might reasonably expect based on our abilities and efforts. You see, this changes the way we pray. We understand that we come to God with so very little. And we say, Lord, will you bless this? Will you bless this? You see, my prayer for our church continues, Lord, may you bless our church. 
May your blessing rest on our church and on my woefully inadequate and insufficient efforts to help build this church. Because I can't do it. I can't. But he can. I have so little to offer. But when he blesses it, it's so great. Eighthly, in a good church, they reach the lost locally and globally. They reach the lost locally and globally. The Great Commission tells us to make disciples of all nations and people groups, not just the ones we want to. We begin in our city. We extend the good news to all regions of the earth. In Luke 24, 47, Jesus says, repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning with Jerusalem. Just before his ascension, Jesus told his disciples, you receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. The Apostle Paul made the remarkable claim, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9.23. Now I want to have a moment of honesty and transparency with you here because our little church does a great job giving to missionary endeavors through the cooperative program. We've supported people, including myself, to go on foreign mission trips. But sometimes I wonder if we can do more. Sometimes I, I wonder, maybe we could go on more foreign mission trips. Maybe we could give more Commissions. Further, I want to say that our, our church has done a great job when we've had events to try to reach our community. We have people that, that have come out to help with our block party and cooking food and giving out um, uh, snow cones and cotton candy and, and all those things. And when we have our harvest festival, we have all kinds of, of people helping. And for a small church, we've done this remarkable job. Some of you have sat with me at Good Neighbor Days just to hand stuff out and invite people to church. Where I feel that we are weak is when it comes to personal evangelism. We see very few people coming to Christ in our Jerusalem. I want to be honest. I, I get it. Personal evangelism is hard work. I'm inadequate. I have my own inadequacy. I pray about them all the time. I can't tell you how many books I've read on how to do a better job witnessing. I'm reading another one right now. I struggle just like anyone else to, to tell people about Jesus. But here's what I want you to know. I keep praying. I keep praying, Lord, help me to be a witness. Lord, help me to proclaim the gospel. Not just on Sunday morning when I stand in the pulpit. That's easy. Help me to proclaim the gospel when I'm at Walmart. Help me to proclaim the gospel to my neighbor. Help me to proclaim the gospel to my waiter or waitress. Help me to pro proclaim the gospel to these people I'm talking to. And I keep, I keep on praying. 
And I keep working at it. And I ask that you commit to doing the same. I just ask that you keep praying for opportunities to share the gospel and that you keep working at sharing the gospel. And if you don't know how, if you say, well, I don't even know how to share the gospel, please come talk with me. I specifically pray for the salvation of people that I know and that I meet. Sometimes they're just acquaintances that I'll have a conversation with out of nowhere sometimes. And I'll pray for their salvation. Pray for the salvation of people you know and meet. Seek God to give us a harvest right here in our Jerusalem. We should be praying, God, God, help me to be a witness. And I believe that if we are faithful, he will give us a harvest. But we have to be faithful. And I believe part of the reason that we don't see a harvest in America that everybody's freaking out about, that, that people are walking away from the Christian faith or are not coming to Christ, is because we are not faithful. Ninth, in a good church, leaders are mature, godly men of integrity. In a few weeks, we'll have a message on church leadership, but for now, let me say this. A church can't be healthy without godly leaders. In both of the places where Paul gives us the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, the emphasis is on godly character and not spiritual gifts. It is summed up as being above reproach. This is seen in their home life. The only spiritual gift that's, a, that's listed in the qualifications for elders is able to teach. The spiritual requirements for deacons and deaconesses, in my opinion, deaconesses in my opinion, we'll talk about that later at some point, also focuses on godliness in 1 Timothy 3, 8-13. Now, apart from preaching and teaching God's word, the main job of elders is to shepherd God's flock, the church. Listen to what Paul said in his final charge to the elders in Ephesus. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained in his own blood. Similarly, listen to what Peter said. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. However, let's not forget that the Bible is also clear on the church when it says this, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no, of no advantage to you. Leaders must be mature, godly men of integrity, and the church must submit to the leadership so that it's a joy for the leader to lead. That's the whole point. Well, we made it to the final point. You didn't think we'd make it, did you? Well, we made it. Number 10, trait number 10 of a good church is this. 
they deal lovingly and biblically with sinning members. They deal lovingly and biblically with sinning members. I have to be honest. It's rare to see any church practice church discipline in our day. So let me say this. If a church wants to be holy and have a valid witness in its community, church discipline is essential. And yes, later we will have an entire message devoted to the topic of church discipline. Jesus taught in Matthew 18, verses 15 and 17, where he directs us first to go privately to a brother who's in sin. Remember, this is a brother or sister who's in sin, not, not preference, not a preference issue, but they're in sin. If they don't repent, you go with one or two others. And if they're still not repentant, then you go and tell them to the whole church. The final step, if there is no repentance, you treat that person like a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, we are to treat them like an unbeliever. Paul gave instructions to the church in Corinth that they better expel a man from the church who is openly in immoral behavior with his father's wife. So that his sin would not infect the entire church. Sometimes I wonder if many of our churches are struggling and, and having all kinds of problems and losing their testimony in their community because they are infected with, un, and, uh, infected with undealt, unrepentant sin. Sometimes in the pew, Sometimes in the pulpit. And they refuse to deal with it. They just eh, sweep it under the rug, pretend like it didn't happen. And hope everything works out. And it doesn't work out. Because you never deal with the sin. And then we go and pray for God to bless, but we haven't even dealt with the sin. That doesn't even make no sense. Good church deals lovingly and biblically with sinning members. So now you know what a good church is. And you know it's not about doing, but about being. You may be listening to this message and, and you think way back to that second point where I talked about proclaiming the gospel without compromise. And perhaps during that time you felt a little tug at your heart. Perhaps today you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ and you want to do that today. I want you to know that you can certainly do so. You can, you can pray something like this, Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are God's son and you died to forgive me of my sins. I know I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. I turn from my sin. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. I'm going to live for you the rest of my life. Amen. It's not a magic prayer. You trust in Christ that saves you. You're just expressing that to the Lord through prayer. If you said a prayer like that or, or that prayer, I would love to follow up with you. You can come forward at the end of the service and talk about that, or you can you can text the word faith to 309-328-3488. And I can follow up with you from there. You can even do that in your pew if you want to. I also want to say this. 
You know, as I was going through these traits of a, of a good church, maybe you realize, oh, I need to align myself with this church. I would encourage you to have a conversation with me and let's make that happen. Let's, let's talk about church membership. And yes, we'll have a whole sermon devoted to that. I think that's next week, actually. Or maybe you are a member and you realize there are some areas where you need to do some work. I would ask that you make that commitment today. Ask the Lord to bless you in those areas. And if you need to respond, I'll be down front. One last thing. I would recommend two helpful books to you this morning. One by Mark Dever called What is a Healthy Church? And another by Thabiti Enibois. I can never say his last name, so I'll just do it. It's called What is a Healthy Church Member? Dever has some good stuff on their site on 9marks.org. One of them is a one-page summary of what to do if you're thinking of leaving your church. It's also in his book under How to Find a Good Church. He gives these diagnostic questions. Let me read them to you. Would I want to find a spouse who has been brought up under this church's teaching? What picture of Christianity will my children see in this church? Something distinct or something a lot like the rest of the world? Would I be happy to invite non-Christians to this church? That is, would they clearly hear the gospel and see lives that are consistent with the gospel? Is this church a place where I can minister and serve? He also says if you're moving to a new area, try to find a church home before buying a house. So are you ready to recap? A good church is where they teach God's word for the equipping of the saints, where they proclaim the gospel without compromise, where they love God and one another while worshiping in spirit and truth, where they make obedient disciples who live by grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, where they are a loving fellowship, where they have loving fellowship among the saints and it's edifying and healthy, where the ordinances of baptism and communion are practiced, where prayer undergirds everything, where they reach the lost both locally and globally, where leaders are mature, godly men of integrity, and where they deal lovingly and biblically with sinning members. Guess what? We are not a perfect church. Shocking! We're not. But I don't think that we're totally deficient in all ten areas either. So I hope no one hears this message and say, say well, I'm done with this crazy town. This church is messed up. But rather, let's commit ourselves to grow in every area for the glory of God and for Jesus Christ that we would be a good church. Will you commit to the cause? Let's close. Pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. We went a lot of places. With a lot of verses. Though these topical messages aren't aren't typically what we what we have as we typically preach through a book of the Bible, but I pray that that perhaps you just touch someone's conscience this morning. Maybe there's someone that they'll listen to this message maybe they'll listen to it next week even or tonight 
And we'll come to that second point where we talked about proclaiming the gospel without compromise. And Lord, maybe your heart will just feel that tug. So Lord, I pray that you'd use this, this message and your word to go forth. That there'd be people that would be committed to Christ from it. They'd come to saving knowledge of who Jesus is. And then secondly, Lord, I'd, I'd pray for those that are here and maybe as we were rolling through some of those things, they, they said, oh, I'm, not, I'm not doing that. That's not me. And maybe this morning they, they need to repent or maybe they need to call out to you and just ask you to, to bless them in a certain area. Lord, I pray that if anybody needs to make a decision where whether it's uh, baptism or want to join the church, pray that they would make that commitment. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just be a church that is known in our community. We wouldn't just be a church that where neat things happen or this, that, or the other. God, I pray that we would be a good church according to your word. And that when people came in here, whether they're, they're visiting or they're members or whatever, that they that they would say, this is a good church. That they would, that they would when people are looking for a church, that, that, that would be our attitude. Well, you found it. However you've spoken to our heart, I pray that we respond this morning. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. And as we sing, you, you are going to come this morning.